Good morning, I'm Pastor Chris, and I get to, get to share the message with you. Welcome if you're online. Uh, we're going to have communion later if you're online, so go grab, grab some juice and grab a piece of bread somewhere and, and be ready for that. Uh, yeah, so Happy New Year. How many of you are sick of hearing 2020 vision jokes already and 2020 this and that? Yeah, okay, all right, all right, yep. Um, and how many of you did the stayed up all night, stayed up till midnight and did the thing and you were up and you, and you stayed? How many of you did that? And how many of you celebrated with London at like 8 o'clock or 6 o'clock, whatever that was, and said, <laughs> Happy New Year, bloat, <laughs> and went to bed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me, as Pastor Jim mentioned, we are in a two-part message that I get to wrap up on the book of Ecclesiastes, on living life backward. I am really, really excited about this. Pastor John kicked us off last week. Let me give you a little background to where this book came from, actually. I, uh, I picked this book up last spring, I believe, and I just I was in a bookstore, saw it, looked interesting, and I flipped it open. And honestly, I bought it because there was a quote on, on the beginning from this guy. That he was quoting a, this German theologian bishop guy, and there was a quote that just really grabbed me. I'm going to get to the quote in a second, but there's a little bit of kind of interesting nuance to it. The guy's name, first of all, is Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Yeah, that's his name. I like it. <laughs> so his name's really big. So he's from the 1700s, and that's where this quote came from. And I was doing a little research, and I didn't know this, but this guy was actually one of the ones that started the Moravian movement, which is the movement that influenced John Wesley that Pastor Jim talked about a couple weeks ago, actually, that, that there's this connection to that, that, that he was the one that actually sent those missionaries on their way, and then they were the ones that, that had that moment with John Wesley that really stirred him and, and sent him on a new direction. So for the three of you that thought that was interesting, I got 27 more minutes, so <laughs> stay with me. All right. <laughs> okay. So here's the quote. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. I'm just going to try and say it as much as possible because it's fun. The quote he said is, Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Thank you very much. <laughs> you thought it was going to be more Hallmark with Christmas, right? But, but that's what it was. And, and let me read it one more time. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. It gave me peace. <laughs> and, and I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But would you pray with me? Father God, we give you thanks for this day. Lord, as we, as we dive into your word, I pray that your word, your word affects us. That through your word, you change our hearts to be in line with yours. Through your truth, you, you change our lives to be a reflection of your son. And Lord, I pray through your spirit that you ignite a fire inside of us to want nothing more than to be in your presence. Lord, we give you thanks for being a God that, that loves us so much. Lord, we, we thank you. And right now I pray, Lord, that, that through the next few moments that you just speak through my words and anything that's from me is forgotten and that only the things that are from you are the things that are, are remembered. We give you thanks, God. Amen. All right, so preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Now, lest you think that this is, oh yeah, well, you're a pastor, so that makes sense. I just want to be clear, that quote's for all of us. That's pretty much all of our jobs right there. And we're gonna we're gonna unpackage what that looks like and how that connects to the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the book, by the way, is available out in the, out in the lobby out there, and it, it looks like this. And another, another fun little fact is uh, if you look at it, too, if you see the, the thing on the screen, it, it gives kind of the, the decal. If you can put that up there, that'd be great. It says living life, and then it says backwards. Now, um, it, 
the, the, the book itself, like the title book, it, it's written backward on the title. I'm dyslexic. It was about the fifth or sixth time that somebody and somebody said something about it, that it was written backwards. I had no idea. <laughs> I, read, I, I had the book for like a month and didn't know. I was like, oh, it is backward. Well, how about that? Anyway, so yeah, life of a dyslexic right there. Um, all right. So it's all about the book of Ecclesiastes. Something interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the few books in the Bible that actually has a target audience that's fairly narrow. At the end of the book, we find out that the book is written towards young people. It's written towards people probably in their, in their teens and 20s. It's, it's written to that kind of a audience. However, it really is good for all of us, even us old people. There's lots of truth in it. But that's an interesting little nuance. The book is written by, by probably Solomon, who was... Was, was very wise and very smart and this king, but he's written it from a perspective of the teacher. So he starts it as the author, introduces the teacher, the teacher goes through, and then he concludes it by wrapping up what the teacher has said. And it's very fascinating. The teacher is trying to convey wisdom and things that he has learned through his life to this next generation. It's kind of one of those classics, hey, I learned from my successes, learned from my mistakes, don't want you to have to learn the hard way like I did. That's kind of the nutshell of it. Now, uh, here, here's the thing. What is the book about? Well, we're going to start. I'm just going to give it away. Here it is. You're all going to die. <laughs> That's what it is. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. <laughs> that everybody is going to die. That's kind of throughout the book. He has this repeating theme of reminding people that your life is meaningless. Now, we hear that quote, we've, we've heard that quote, that meaningless, meaningless, but that's not exactly the best way to do it. That that, that, that that translation isn't quite accurate. Really, the better word is hevel. That's the original word, was hevel, and it really means more vapor or smoke. And Pastor John did a really good job of having a candle that he was trying to grab. So if you imagine trying to grab your breath on a cold day or the smoke from a candle or or something, some kind of mist, you know, something like that. That's what he's saying it's like. It's like when you, the act of actually grabbing hold of it makes it disappear. And the things in our life are just like that. That we go after these things and we try to get them, we try to, try to grab them, and it's all hevel. It's all mist. It's all vapor. What meaning does it have? And the reason it is that way is because what we try to do is we try to take those things and we try to do three things. We try to master accumulate and indulge. Master, accumulate, and indulge. That's what we attempt to do in our human nature. Master, accumulate, and indulge the various areas of our life. John covered the first three areas, and then I'm going to cover uh, three more today. The three areas that he did were, were pleasure, wisdom, and work. Then he walked through how we try to master, uh, indulge, and accumulate pleasure, just by having fun, by living for our vacations, by living for the things that we enjoy, by, by seeking, a, seeking a escapism through entertainment, whatever it is, whatever your thing of pleasure is, it's all over the gamut, that when we seek after that wholeheartedly, when we make that the center of our lives, it winds up being hevel. We wind up being woefully disappointed because it's meaningless. We look for wisdom even. Wisdom is good. And by the way, pleasure is not bad either. All pleasure. We're supposed to enjoy things, but it's when we put it out of order. It's wisdom, or pleasure, wisdom, and work. And the other three that we're going to talk about are kind of like when you, uh, you know, the, the, the classic picture of the kid that gets a Christmas present in a big box, and they open it up, 
and they're so excited about the box. <laughs> and then they start playing with the box all day long, and the present that you spent hundreds of dollars on sits over there, and maybe eventually they'll touch it. We do that. See, that's what we do. We, we go after that thing that is, is, is kind of not the real thing. Because, see, all these things we're going to talk about are gifts from God that we've been given to enjoy. So, so don't misunderstand this and think that this book is all about we can't have any fun. It's quite the opposite. Actually, the book of Ecclesiastes is all about you should enjoy the life you've been given, and here's how you do it. So pleasure, you should enjoy it, but don't do it wrong. Don't sin. Wisdom, you should seek after it, but, but don't forget that it'll fall apart because guess what? Wise people, foolish people, they both die too. <laughs> they meet the same end. You, everybody's going to die. The third one they talked about was work, that, that it's great to work and great to work towards things. But again, people that work hard, people that are lazy, they both die. <laughs> so what is the point of it? Let's, let's look at the next three areas that we tend to master, try to master, accumulate, and indulge in. First one's wealth. Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. <clears throat> then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, hevel, vapor, like chasing the wind. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. Notice that line there, they envy their neighbors. We have a term for that now. It's called jonesing, right? You, you want what the neighbors have. Stop and remember as you read the Bible, this book was written in 900 B.C.-ish. That's a long time ago. And as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm, I'm amazed at the relevance that it could have been written yesterday or today. It's, it's so relevant to now that, that it has this way of transcending the, the centuries and the millennia. And it still makes sense that we think about our neighbors a lot. Remember, he didn't have social media to compare each other either. <laughs> they didn't have that. They didn't live in, in neighborhoods like we do where you're, you're looking at your neighbor's car all the time and different things. I mean, it was a lot less of that, but yet still he recognizes that envy of our neighbor's stuff is one of the things that motivates us for wealth. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 goes on. Those who love money, keyword there, love money, will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, check this one out, the more people come to help you spend it. <laughs> Please laugh at that because the Bible's funny. <laughs> so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers, hevel? Uh, I think that's... a. Uh, that's great because uh, the more people help spend it. Now we know something about the teacher. He was a parent. So, yeah, because <laughs> when you have kids, what do they do? They help you spend your money. That's what they do. <laughs> so, uh, but, but no matter, even if you're not a parent, you know that if you have money, there's plenty of people that will help you spend it and get rid of that money. So the Bible is funny. Here's, here's the thing. Money is a, is a pain. Um, there are, tend to be two kinds of people in the world. There's more of them in West Michigan on one side of this than the other. So how many of you are my people like me that not good at money? That's me. I'm not good at it. Go ahead. Admit it. If you're not very good with money, raise your hand. You're one of those people that's like, eh. Now all you Dutch people, raise your hand uh, <laughs> that are good at money and good at saving and all that. Yeah, yeah. You're, good job. Way to go. Um, and the Bible talks about money a lot. 
A lot, a lot, actually. There's a ton of information in the Bible about money and wealth and what you should do and how you should live. And, and the key thing is simple. There, it really boils down to just two things. If you take it all and just boil it down, it's pretty simple. Be generous and don't love money. That's it. It's that simple. Be generous, don't love money. And then, it, then it goes on. There's lots of ways where it tells you how to do that. There's a principle in the Bible called tithing, which means 10%. And basically, it's this. It's whatever you make, take the first 10% and give it back to God. That's what you should do. And what it is, is it's a tool. It's a principle. It's an exercise to help us learn how to not love our money, to, to, to hold it loosely, to give it back. Now, if you really understand the principle, too, it's not just about the 10%. The other 90% is, is yours to do what will honor God also. <laughs> That's the key. That, that the whole point is that money itself is a gift from God that, yes, we get to enjoy. We get to have. But don't put it in the wrong place. Don't love it and don't hold on to it too tightly. So, so give it away. Be generous when you can and when you're able. And it doesn't matter whether you have lots and lots of money and you can do that in, in $1,000 increments or whatever, or whether it's just, you know what, I got a couple bucks and I can buy someone a, a whatever, or I can give it to this, or I can let go of it for this reason. That the key is be generous, don't love money. Money has a place, and it is a good gift. But if you try to hold on to it too tightly, it will disappear just like that vapor. Because guess what? Y'all die, and we all have to leave it behind. And the next person... They may not even care about it one bit. <laughs> the next one that, uh, that the teacher talks about that we seek after in ways that are inappropriate to master, to indulge in our relationships. Now, this one is, is a little bit trickier to fully understand. It's a little bit more nuanced because it's an important thing, and, and, and we, we got to dive into it here. So first, the teacher talks a lot about how great relationships are. And in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, there's a passage that, that I like to actually use for weddings a lot, and, and it's one that really makes sense to use in those settings. It says this, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help them. But if someone falls alone, is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be, be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated but two can stand back to back, kind of like Pastor Jim and I, or, or trip over each other, but, you know, hey, <laughs> and conquer. And then it says this, this phrase here, three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. In another place in Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher talks about being happy with your wife, with your spouse, that you should enjoy that relationship. So he talks about these, these areas of how important relationships are. However, he also brings up the fact that even this can be hevel. Even relationships that we were made to be in that are so, so important can also be hevel. And here's how. See, when we put people in a place where we find our value in that relationship, that's when we get in dangerous places. When you put on your spouse or your children or your coworkers or your boss or your friends or your whatever or your family and you find your value and you find your worth in them, that becomes heaven. Because guess what? They can all die. 
That's the reality of the world we live in. It, 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 it sucks. It's, it's, it's a tough one to understand, but, but you got to be careful with that. Now, there's a right way to do the people thing. The right way to do the relationship, we actually can go and see what Jesus talks about. See, because Jesus is asked, hey, what's the most important commandment? And he answers about relationships. Because <laughs> both of the things that he says have to do with relationships. He says, love God, love others. That's it. That's what he tells. You may, may, may know the story that, that Jesus is, is asked by this guy, well, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Well, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? And there's this whole thing that Jesus goes through. And basically what he says is that you're supposed to love anybody that needs loving. And when we engage in relationships, what we can sometimes do where it becomes hevel is we decide who that makes sense with and who that doesn't. So we, we love the people that are lovable, but we say not these people. And when we do that, it also becomes hevel. We are made for relationships. We're made to enjoy them. They're a gift from God. But put them in the right spot, in the right area. The next one, the sixth one that we're going to hit on is power and influence. Power and influence. Uh, another, way to, another word you could use for this might be control, actually, too. So think about it that way. Here's what the teacher says. It is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise up from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. This is a reference probably to Joseph, a story that they would have known, who was in prison and then became the second in command. But then, but then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. Endless crowds stand around him, but then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it is all meaningless, hevel, like chasing the wind. We know that power is fleeting, that any kind of control you have over your life, whether it's a job position, whether it's a relational positional authority, whatever it is, it can be gone like that. I know this is one that probably gets to me because, see, I, I don't have as much a control. Here's how it manifests for me, a little, little bit of transparency here. Is I like to be the one responsible. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I'm wired. I, I don't mind if I'm making all the decisions, but, but I do like the one being responsible for if things go badly. I, I don't know why, but maybe it's a, a, a hero complex. I don't know what it is, but I, I like that. That's something I enjoy, and I have to be careful because I can find my value in it sometimes in inappropriate ways. And, and I think it does boil down to a sense of control over those situations. I'm going to read to you an excerpt from the book uh, that, that really was probably the most meaningful part of the book for me. I even drew little pictures of my mind being blown by this, uh, this little uh, thing, but it looks more like I'm being decapitated, actually, now that I look at it. But anyway, <laughs> um, here's what it says. We tend to use the world around us, work, possessions, people, as leverage for our own purpose to achieve our own goals. They are tools we use to, to master life for our own ends. But the teacher's whole point in this section is to show us that the world cannot be leveraged to suit me. And life is meant to be enjoyed, not mastered. Hear that again. Life is meant to be enjoyed, not mastered. That one stung a little bit. It stings more in a minute, though. <laughs> Here's how Jeffrey Myers put it. Realizing this can 
help you deal with life in a way that honors God. For example, do not be surprised to find yourself in frustrating situations from which you cannot escape by means of controlling it. Now, this next line, for I think for especially guys, this is going to just brace yourselves because this might hurt a little bit. Not everything can be fixed. <laughs> I know I like to fix things. <laughs> Not everything is a problem to solve. Some things must be born, must suffer, and endure. Wisdom does not teach us how to master the world. It does not give us techniques for programming life, such as life becomes ordinary and predictable. No, wisdom teaches us to appreciate the gifts that God has given us and to be in the moment. So here's these six areas that we had. We've gone through these six areas, and, and each one is an area that, that we, we can get off, but we also have to remember is a gift because they really, really are. So the teacher takes us from the beginning of the, path, the book in Ecclesiastes 1 where he says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless, hevel, vapor. What do people get from all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. So what's the point? How does he, how does he land this plane of meaninglessness? <laughs> well, at the end of the book, he, he does give us some things. And even in the middle, sprinkled throughout, there's one in the spot in the middle in, in chapter 5 that's so beautiful. I love this. This is one that I think that each one of us, especially Christians, People in the church, uh, I don't know if you've grown up in the church your whole life or this is your first time walking in the door, but I think if you live in the United States, you would, you would see this, that sometimes Christians tend to be the ones that are no fun at the parties and, and don't know how to just relax and enjoy life. But the teacher tells us in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, so even I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat. Mmm, I like this verse. <laughs> to drink and enjoy their work under the sun. Enjoy their work even. So it's, it's like, go, go, go out, go spend time with people, and, and go, get, go do some work that you enjoy, that you can really, you know, get something out of. During the short life God has given them. And to accept their lot in life. That, that, that's a lot right there. <laughs> accept your lot in life, you know? We always can look around and think there's some, there's some better situation, there's better thing. And, and you know what? There might be. God may have something, some future for you that is, that is much better than today. Your today is not your future. You don't know what God's got in store and, and what things you can, you can work towards and endeavor towards that will, that will help in that area. But where you are right now, learn to be content. Learn to be happy. Accept your lot in life. This indeed is a gift from God. So even in the place that you might not be too thrilled with the circumstance, even that can be a gift from God and is a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Let me read that again. When you do these things, when you work and you enjoy life and you, you have those moments, God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Ah, I think if you think about 2020 and news resolutions and such, man, if that couldn't be everybody's like verse for the year to, to do that, to, to be in this moment and not brood with the past. So that's, that's in the middle of the book. Then the teacher goes on at the end where he goes through, <coughs> excuse me, 
excuse me, this section where he talks about being young and, and really speaks to that youthful person. And it's kind of cool. I, I really encourage you to read it because anybody that's over like probably, we'll go 35, all right? You're going to relate to some of the things that he does because it's really brilliant writing. He starts talking about all the ways that, uh, that we get old and uses these great word pictures. So, so, and he, what he says is, when you get old, remember him. That's basically the, the summarization. But he uses really cool illustrations about how... Uh, uh, let's see, when, when life is not pleasant anymore, before the light of the sun and the moon and the stars dim because of your old eyes, because you can't see as well as you used to, and uh, when, you're, when your legs, the guards of your house, start to tremble and, you start, and your shoulders start to stoop a little bit, and, 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 and the windows uh, uh, of your eyes seem a little dimmer, and, and it goes on and on with all these really cool uh, illustrations of getting older that are spot on <laughs> with, with us today. But then he keeps saying but still remember your creator. And he reminds us that the things we seek after are meaningless. Then, the, then the, the book ends with this passage in verse 13. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including the secret things, whether good or bad. And I think it looks like this, fear God, obey, love, joy. That these things right here are what the teacher is getting at. That if we fear God, understand who he is. It doesn't mean like, like terrified only. Yes, God's a little scary because he is God. <laughs> but, but there's also a reverence. There's just an understanding that he is God. And when we do that, we automatically should want to obey him. And, and obedience is, a, is kind of a word that's not looked at highly in, this, in our culture today. But obedience boils down to love. That when you love somebody and obey them, that there's this intertwinedness of these two concepts, that love spurs obedience and obedience spurs love. And when you do those, it brings joy. That if you look at that equation, that these are all equal, these things go together, fear God, obey, love, joy. That that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying us to live this way. This is how you get away from the hevel. This is how you can actually grab onto the smoke of life and enjoy it. Fear God, obey, love, and joy. Now, if we stopped there, that would be okay. There's one problem, though. See, the teacher only knows part of the story, the part we do know. See, the teacher talks about these things, and he's spot on. He also knows that God's going to figure some of these things out. If you read the book and you read through between the lines, there's this hope that God's got something even more, but I don't even know what it is, that, that, that you can almost hear him in the background, that, that there is something more than just this meaninglessness, that, that there's got to be, but I don't know what it is. And, and he knows that God has promised this, but he doesn't know how it's going to fulfill. But we do, friends. See, because we know that God sent his son to die on a cross for us to give us life eternal. That when we talk about life being meaningless, and yes, you're all going to die, but you're all going to get an opportunity to live forever. That God has already figured out death through his son. And even more than that, we know more how to live than the teacher did. And we can go to Paul it's a great place to, the, the Apostle Paul writes about how to live in a way that I think is the best ending for the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 26. 
And here's what Paul, a, 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 a worker for Christ, an apostle, someone who's in prison, someone who's gone through good stuff and bad stuff, someone who started these churches and, and mentored and done all these things, he says these words. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ. Here's where it comes in. Whether I live or die. For me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. Now, we read scripture sometimes too fast. Listen to Paul's voice here, because you, you can hear his voice quiver a little bit. If, if you really focus, if you really, he's got this moment of kind of like, he, he almost is pausing and wondering and thinking about things in a deep way. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all you grow and experience the joy of your faith. The list that you had that we went through, it's in your, it's in your bulletin. There's, there's these things listed out. Wealth, work, pleasure, power, wisdom, relationships are all hevel compared to a life lived for Jesus. And Paul hits it spot on that we are called to live a life for him and him alone. And what does that look like? How does that work? It looks like living life backward with the end in mind, knowing that we get to spend eternity with our creator. We get to spend eternity with the one who gave his life for us and that's amazing. But what do we get to do now? What do we get to do now? How does that work now? Because that's great. But just as Paul says, it's better for us to be here. He's not just talking to preachers here. He's not just talking to the pastor types and, and missionaries and like that. No, no, no. This is for each one of us to wrap our heads around that for us to live is for Christ. So my friends, with that list in mind, what does it look like for your wealth to be for Christ? Here's the action point. What does it look like for your wealth to not be hevel that you grab onto, but something you, you give back to Christ in generosity? What does it look like for your work to be for Christ? I don't care whether you're a mechanic or a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or, or a stay-at-home mom or dad or whatever you do. The work you do can be for Christ. What if you flipped that script and started that story? We talk all the time here at Lifestream about living and sharing the story of God. And sometimes I think we need to be clear. This is what it is. Living and sharing the story of God is taking these areas of your life and saying, I'm going to do them for Jesus. What if your pleasure was for Christ? What if the things you enjoyed, your entertainment choices, and the things that you did on your weekends and your holidays and your vacations, that you gave them all back to Christ in some way? What did that look like? What if your power and your influence over the world around you was used to communicate to the world around you that Jesus died for them and loves them and desires nothing more than a relationship with them? What if your wisdom and your smarts and all the th that, that was for Christ? What if all of your relationships and your friends and your families and your marriages and your spouses we're focused on living them for Christ and Christ alone. How would that change the way 
you operate. We talked about power earlier, and I think that there's a significant thing about this, that, that really the only true power we have is to surrender. And what it boils down to is these six areas, what would it look like for you to surrender them all to Jesus? Give them all back to him. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Enjoy life and give all glory to God in everything you do.